Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I'm very excited for our guest today, Mr. Lauren Adler. Mr. Adler is a health policy expert. He's the Associate Director of the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy, and I personally have found the work of him and his colleagues, specifically as it relates to explaining the No Surprises Act and even providing advice to legislators about the act itself, to be immensely enlightening. So I'm here with Lauren to talk about what are the implications of the No Surprises Act? How does it apply to anesthesiology, to patients? And it's a big, complicated thing <laughs> that I'm hoping he's going to help us unravel today. So, Lauren, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, to start us off, you know, I opened up, in preparation for this conversation, I opened up the, the bill of which the No Surprises Act is a subset. And I immediately, <laughs> I immediately gave up, I will admit. Like, there's no way I'm going to parse this very technical language. So, can you maybe just give us a a sense of what is contained in the No Surprises Act? Sure. So the No Surprises Act at its core is really about trying to address and take patients out of the middle of this issue, surprise out-of-network billing, as it's called, um, right? I think even that kind of uh, defining that always gets a little difficult at times. I think a lot of patients think almost any bill they get is a surprise, uh, or certainly, certainly if they're in their deductible and that sort of thing. But right, this is a very specific instance we're talking about where it is pretty much a patient who is treated by a provider that they did not really have any sort of meaningful choice in choosing and end up, you know, they chose an in-network primary physician or a surgeon or whatever it might be and ended up treated by an out-of-network clinician as part of that care. You know, the sort of the two canonical examples are anesthesiology being one and emergency medicine, really everything in the emergency context, not just the, the EM physicians, but you know, sort of all the people on call in the in the emergency room. And then right, sort of the other, the other types of doctors who you don't patients don't typically choose, like a radiologist, or sometimes this gets into neonatology, right? There's a sort of host of these hospital-based physicians in general, but can get a little broader than that. And basically the bill is about saying it is now, it will now be illegal for the out-of-network physician in that situation to bill the patient for more than whatever their in-network cost sharing would have been under their health plans. So this is right. We're only talking about folks in commercial health plans here, not talking about folks on Medicare, Medicaid, VA, and all, all of that, where this already sort of uh, was illegal. And then basically says, okay, now that you can't bill the patient, some people still got to get paid. So we are now... The insurer, basically, we tell the insurer, you have to send some initial payment for the out-of-network service that happened. And then basically it sets up this so-called arbitration process uh, that to adjudicate what the quote-unquote appropriate or fair payment is for the service in question. And it then gives sort of a bunch of guidance points to the arbitrators, uh, you know, think sort of like a judge that is, uh, who generally has some expertise in coding or something along those lines. These are often like lawyers, or I don't think many people know this, but there are just like a ton of these actual arbitration companies that just like do this and they will adjudicate the disputes. And, you know, primarily they're kind of the guidance points is saying, look, we're going to look at whatever the sort of average in network price was for this service from that health plan. And then also sort of a 
handful of other factors, some a little bit more qualitative almost in sense of, you know, the quality of the physician, the, you know, in the emergency case, you know, what type of hospital is, is, a, you know, a level one trauma center, that sort of thing, a whole host of these, and also sort of prior contracted rates between between the two parties in question. So that, that's sort of the crux of it. There's also a whole host of little transparency initiatives in the bill, but all I feel those are a little bit to the side of the No Surprises Act. Yes. Okay. Interesting. So it sounds like the devil's in the details on this one and the meat of the conversation that we could have would could easily, we could spend the whole time talking about how do we decide what the arbiter is going to determine to be a fair rate? Because at the end of the day, if that's what the physician or the group is going to get paid, that's sort of the new the new normal. And that's going to be a, a shock to the system, perhaps, to reset the economics of uh, providing health care. Is that fair to say? So, uh, so I think that certainly will have some effect. Um, I think without question, I, you know, when we have these types of hospital-based specialties, I, I think where I generally start from is that because the patient doesn't choose their anesthesiologist, typically a little different in like pain management context, if you get a nerve block or something, but in the right in the typical anesthesia for a surgery thing, you're not choosing your individual doctor. And the health plan often doesn't have that much power to steer patients to, you know, uh, some academic medical center that has some in-network anesthesiologists and then a staffing company that's at a network or something like that, right? The health plan generally has very little power to steer their patients to one way or the other. However, obviously the, ha- the hospital has a lot of power in this or the ASC has a lot of power in either sort of strongly suggesting that their anesthesiologists join the, uh, join the same networks that they are in. And often, right, there is money flowing between the, there already is a lot of money flowing between the hospital and the anesthesia group that is practicing, whether these are stipends or medical director fees that are happening. So there is, I only want to say that because there is this negotiation that has been left untouched between the hospital, between the facility and the anesthesia group, that that still has the sort of normal market mechanisms that are there. I think sort of the core thing that has happened is now, I think there are some groups, a subset of the specialty where they are sort of gaining some leverage from the fact that the health plan has little ability to steer their patients and therefore can sort of use this, look, I can still see a good number of patients even if I'm out of network. And that gives them a sort of best alternative to contracting that most other specialties don't have, right? A primary care physician or even you know a cardiologist or something like that does not really have they basically have to join. If they want to see patients, they basically have to be in network with rare exceptions. You know, that's how you see patients. And it's, you know, anesthesia is still almost 90% in network. It's not like there's no pressure to do this. A lot of hospitals force their anesthesia groups effectively to join networks. Maybe they won't use the word force, but won't renew the contract if you don't do that. Okay. So what you just described, 90% of anesthesiologists are in network in the facility where they're providing care. So we're perhaps talking about a, a subset, maybe 10% of anesthesiologists who are out of network, where they're in the OR with a surgeon who's in network and a hospital that's in network. The anesthesia group is a separate group that's out of network for a given patient. In that circumstance, if we maybe color for us anecdotally, sort of the maximally exploitative path for the anesthesia group, just so we can understand what are the dangers, the moral hazards that a group would have as they, you know, take this problematic model to its inevitable end, if that makes sense. Sure. So, right. So the the fear here and sort of the reason for legislation is that at least in some instances, there are the case where, 
a you know a commercially insured patient uh, goes to the hospital and is you know gets treated by the anesthesiologist and that group is then can then turn around and one you know get paid as much as they can by the insurer which is uh you know good for that, as much as you can get paid to go for that and then can turn around and balance bill the patient for the difference between their charge sort of like their list price and the and the amount that the insurer paid and use that as as a leverage point because you know this certainly isn't a out of the benevolence of the insurer but an insurer doesn't want their enrollees getting balance billed or else they might switch to another insurer you know and especially right these are mostly employers are really the clients here and you know employers have hr departments and don't love their employees getting uh, balance bills like this so that and in turn that gives leverage to the anesthesiologists or at least some of them to then turn back to get higher contracted rates as well from um, from insurance companies which is sort of how this bleeds over out out of just the instances of surprise bills into also affecting you know your broader negotiation and broader healthcare costs right and now we've said that's now illegal so you've sort of taken away that leverage point so you could see rates go down but only to the degree that the anesthesia group was profiting or gaining leverage from the implicit or explicit threat of surprise billing. If they weren't profiting off of that beforehand, then nothing fundamentally has changed other than you've kind of had this minimum payment instituted, but that's only minimum payments instituted is only a positive, right? That's a price support to some degree where they're coming in and saying the insurer can't pay you less than whatever the average in network rate is. So, you know, at least you're getting paid that. Okay. So when they're is a balanced bill that is assessed to a patient. You know, if I'm contracted with Aetna, this is an Aetna patient, they come in, we do the surgery. Aetna says, we'll give you 800 bucks for this procedure. And then the difference between 800 bucks and whatever our, the price on our menu is as the anesthesia group, that's the, you know, say it's $5,000 for some kind of procedure. There's a $4,200 Delta there. I, what you described is I'm going to now send a bill to the patient for 4,200 bucks because they're deficient in payment essentially to the anesthesia group. For that $5,000 number, how is that number derived? Your guess is as good as mine. There's no, I mean, I think some people have, I think plenty of groups have their reasoning for why they came up with the list price. But I mean, for the most part, the list price is an irrelevant number, right? When you're treating an in-network patient, it, it, I, you could say it's a gajillion dollars. It, it's, it's a completely irrelevant number. But, you know, when you're treating uninsured patients or when you're treating at a network patients, it starts mattering. I mean, I think to some degree, it's clearly chosen with how much I'd love to get paid, keeping in mind that like I need someone to pay it, <laughs> right? So there's, there is there is like some plausible limit, but it's not. You also like you're doing one-off negotiations a lot of time in these situations. It's sort of, a, there's this whole sort of like dealing without a network bills issue that comes up where, yeah, sometimes insurers have these like wraparound networks, like a multi-plan type of thing that helps that has sort of like a rate that they prescribe that happens here, but sometimes it is, you know, how much can I get paid? I don't think, you know, most of the time people aren't getting paid that full $4,200 difference, right? This isn't, you know, collecting for a bill that a person didn't think they were going to get when it's a lot of money is not, is not the simplest thing in the world. Um, I mean, anyone who's tried to collect in a deductible will even, you know, uh, it's, it's, not, it's a similar idea. So, you know, I think you're probably in the emergency context, I think the rule of thumb is you're collecting like 40% or so on average. Um, I've not heard of some of the rule of thumb in anesthesia, but I wouldn't guess terribly different. 
And then in the context of this proposed model, can you describe how that would play out versus how it is currently? In the, in like under the No Surprises Act, you mean? Yes, yes. Sure. So now in the new world, the patient goes to the, you know, uh, to say goes to a new network hospital and network surgeon and the, the anesthesiologist is nominally at a network in this, uh, in this hypothetical here. In that situation, the, right, so the, the in-network doctors just build the insurance company and, you know, handles it all normal. The out-of-network doctor also has to send the bill only to the insurance company. Insurance company tells you, here's what the in-network cost sharing would have been. Now you can bill the patient for that. And here's what I'm paying you for this out-of-network service. And then if the anesthesiologist says, I don't like that amount, or, you know, I think that should be more, they can trigger trigger an open negotiation process and eventually resulting in this arbitration decision where you know the loser pays the costs of this right this costs money to, to to hire these lawyers effectively to adjudicate this case so there's you know there's obviously an administrative and hassle cost involved in using this in this process but the beauty of this at least from the patient perspective is that the patient's none the wiser so the patient has like no idea anymore and that's why I sort of refer to it at this point there is like almost no such thing really as an ADA network anesthesiologist or emergency physician because to the patient's perspective it is now identical whether they are in network or out of network it's only out of network in the physician's perspective or the insurer's perspective exactly but even like even from the physician's perspective it has the difference has been narrowed because now there are prompt pay laws on the insurer that they, you know you right in the in today's world you often get caught in these like games of you know, insurer tries to withhold payment or in some states, the insurer will like give the check to the patient and say, like, tell the provider, go collect from the patient, right? There's all these games that get played where now it's like, okay, the insurer has to make a prompt payment. You know, the, there's only a, you know, it's a 30 day window before you end up in arbitration. There's like timelines here that are at least pretty quick. And right, we talk about arbitration here, but fundamentally insurer knows that that is always a risk. So the initial payment they make is probably going to be very close to whatever the expected outcome is in arbitration. I'm sort of an economist, so I sort of talk in long run things. Obviously, I think there'll be some messiness in the first few years, but eventually everyone's going to know roughly what the arbitrators are going to decide. So I, I think this ends up a lot like in a, five years from now, I think this ends up pretty smooth where insurers just sort of know what the out of network payment is. Everyone knows you're not going to do any better in arbitration. And that's just sort of, and if you think that's too low, then you go to the hot, the, the anesthesia, anesthesia group. Can you know can duke that out with the hospital if they think you know if they're a higher quality group than the one next door and that sort of thing. So from a group's perspective, if we assume we're going to set aside sort of the outlier group who's balance billing every other patient, say from like a fastball down the middle bread and butter type of anesthesia group who perhaps is you know a, a group that contracts with the hospital separately, not hospital employed physicians. How are they? How do they view this development legislatively? Sure. So it, it is something of a mixed bag. I mean, the eventual legislation, I guess it kind of got to the point that no side was super in love with it. And people kind of, the groups largely held their tongues on the actual final bill. I mean, I think certainly the, the I, certainly the large private equity owned anesthesia groups who are, you know, a growing share of the market, I, I would assume are not happy with the final law, whatever they tell investors. Fundamentally, I assume they're not happy. I think to most of the industry, this is less of a change than people are anticipating. Uh, right? If you're in network to nap now, there's a decent chance your contract just stays the same. You get your standard three percent raises, and like it just stays pretty similar. 
it, it is. So I do think there's a lot of this that is going to be less jarring than folks are anticipating, at least for sort of the, you know, the median anesthesia practice in the country who is, you know, smaller regional group, not one of the like U.S. anesthesia partner type of, uh, of entities. Makes sense. So if you're looking at your company's profit and loss statement as an anesthesia group, and you're seeing like 4% of your revenue coming from out of bill, out, out of network billing that you've collected from patients, you have relatively, there. this is just a speed bump, not even. But if you're a group that perhaps has been leveraging this dynamic to your benefit. Or, you know, if we take another, to, to sort of put a more charitable spin on it, maybe you've been forced out of network, as you would describe it as a physician, because insurers are only going to give you some paltry amount. And you're like, screw that. Like, I'm not going to say that that number is okay. And therefore, you're an out of network anesthesiologist who's continuing to provide care. You have a much larger segment of your revenue coming from these procedures. And then for you, there's a huge swath of your business that is now have has all these question marks around it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no. So I think that's right. I mean, I'll be honest, I think there is some remaining uncertainty about exactly how much these sorts of laws have on particularly payments to anesthesiologists where, right, there's a fair amount of evidence that, for instance, the subsidies that hospitals pay to anesthesia groups varies by the payer mix of the hospital. You know, right, a high Medicare share hospital in general is paying more to the anesthesia group than the sort of high commercially insured population. One out of so like there clearly is a financial negotiation that is happening at some level already. The extent to which that just sort of fills in for whatever this did to the insurer anesthesia group is very uncertain. I I, I my sort of expectation is that this takes away some leverage from the anesthesia groups in or some segment of the anesthesia groups in general. I would sort of talk about it more as sort of balancing the scales because now there is, you've, you've sort of made it now it is a, what I would consider a pretty normal market negotiation. That's sort of a three-party negotiation between the facility, the anesthesia group and the insurer here, where I, I think the facility's involvement is important. I, I do expect, you know, maybe slightly slower payment growth from commercial insurers to some, to some segment of the groups. You know, it may also be, there may be more like hardball tactics attempted to, right? There are some groups who are getting paid far above the median, for instance, where this might happen. But right, the insurers are also forced to pay whatever their median rate is. So that's higher than half the anesthesiologists were making. So this is also going to be a raise probably to some anesthesiologists. Okay, so let's talk about the stipend for a minute, because I think this is an interesting dynamic. It basically, if we put on our economist hat for a minute, and we're just going to use like broad brushstrokes to understand how this works across anesthesia groups. Say if I'm a business owner, I'm running an anesthesia practice, I need to make a 25% profit, whether I'm in Wisconsin or LA or wherever, and there's going to be variability depending on geography, I need 25% profit. If my payer mix is really bad, and by that I mean a lot of government payers and not as much commercial where I can have higher reimbursement, then it's going to require a higher stipend to the anesthesia group because I got to hit my, whatever my number is, which is sort of Im implies a certain income to the physicians. So what you're saying is if there are groups out there where this ability to balance bill is removed because they can't continue to take more money from individual patients when it's, they feel it's warranted, what may happen is that the stipend that the physicians require will to some extent perhaps soften that blow? That, that's my expectation anyway, particularly to the degree that 
My guess is that some insurers are going to try to play harder ball than others in this situation. But my expectation then is that those insurers like nominally maybe end up paying less to anesthesia groups. But then I think often what's going to happen is the hospital gets involved and one either just, I think most likely just tells the insurer, look, stop lowballing my anesthesia group or else I'm going to not do business with you. And you clearly, we have a contract and you need me in your network and me, the hospital in this situation, or they just, the hospital, you know, pays some more money to the anesthesia group and then tells the insurance company, you need to pay me more if you want me to stay in network. And it's sort of all, it all shakes out. Similarly, I, I, I say that, but I do, I think there is a chance that there is still some money that is coming off of the top in all of this, but I think it's less apocalyptic than, uh, than sometimes. You, you know. And we're taking those one-time shocks to individual patients and we're basically going to just spread it out over the American populace. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I mean, to some degree, right, you're, I mean, particularly the way the law comes in and institutes this minimum payment at roughly whatever the average was beforehand you know, you're this, the expectation still is this saves a small amount of money and that this has some effect reducing premiums, um, you know, between half a percent and 1% is the expectation from the sort of congressional scorekeeper. Uh, but you know, that is a, an es- a educated guess sort of estimate here because the empirical literature is pretty, pretty nascent in this situation, but you know, but a lot of it is yes. Right. Instead of having huge one-time bills, we're spreading a lot of that over, the population, and I mean, I think from my view, socializing those costs is better than hitting people with $5,000 bills where it is like very difficult. The lottery in reverse, which no one wants to have to deal with or worry about. I mean, it's the point of insurance is that you don't get, right? You're trying to protect yourself from those sort of large shock bills, right? Even though we're paying a lot of money <laughs> to sort of annually for the care. As it relates to the in-network conversation and what an insurer offers and what a group is willing to accept, we've seen some, I don't know how closely you follow this specifically in anesthesiology, but there's been some big, some big groups who decided that they don't like what the other is offering. And it, it has thrown, I mean, like whole systems, whole like huge sections of states of the country now are out of network. The one I'm thinking of is, I think it was United Healthcare, and I want to say USAP, or maybe one of, another one of the big anesthesia groups. The, the point being, as you look at circumstances like that, I think this same issue is sort of in the crosshairs, which is there's a disagreement about what's a fair price for these services. So can you maybe look at a circumstance like that, describe sort of what's happening from your perspective and how that may be different in the future? Sure. So, uh, so certainly you're going to, in any, right, in any healthcare market, you're going to have fights over how much people should get paid, right? That's sort of a normal, that, that's not unusual in any market, right? But in this situation, I, from my view is that the old world, there was this, what I would call a market failure, where there was this ability to treat out of network patients and still like, and, and still get them in the door, which is normally hard for a others for a different type of specialty. In my view, I, right, people always talk about trying to find the right price or something like that from the government's perspective. My view is that we are largely setting up a actual better functioning market. Look, it's healthcare. Nothing's like perfectly functioning here, but a better functioning market where we've now said, look, you can't surprise the bill, bill of the patient. That's just like not, that's not how, that's like hostage E. Like that's not, that's not how a negotiation should work here. Look, they're out of it. You, you know, hospital anesthesiologist and insurer, you figure this out, have a market negotiation, whatever price results from that, that's the market price. And from my view, that's basically what the government is doing here. 
except sort of like putting a little bit of a, a li- things a little bit back in the anesthesiologist corner by kind of saying, but the insurer has to pay at least X, right? Or at least, uh, we don't know actually what the arbitration process will come up with, but I, I talk about average and network prices because that's like the only concrete item they're told about, but fundamentally we actually don't know the answer of what they're gonna, how they'll decide at this moment. Are there any implications for, so I've heard, you know, in the anesthesia world, the the, the, the reimbursement from government payers is, is famously terrible, or that's that's how anesthesiologists would, would describe it. I, I'm curious if you would agree, and to what extent is that a factor in, especially as we think about arbitration and the factors going into setting whatever the new price is going to be whenever the lawyers or judge looks at what's fair, is that going to come into play? And does the fact that government payers pay significantly less than what an anesthesiologist would say the usual and customary rates for service are, something like 30%, what what does that mean in all of this? Sure. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't really have a firm opinion on whether Medicare prices are too high or too low. I think from the, I'll sort of note from the government's perspective, the right price to some degree is the one that guarantees access at a at an efficient cost. And that, so, right. And fundamentally, basically every anesthesiologist accepts Medicare. So I, I think my view is they're, they're paying roughly the, the correct price from the government's perspective, not people want to get paid more money. That's an understandable phenomenon. Everyone wants to get paid more money. I also, look, I don't know what the actual right price is for anesthesia services. I do think it is interesting, at least, that it's really is emergency medicine and anesthesiology and pathology and radiology are kind of the only outliers in uh, groups where the commercial rates are, you know, two, three, four times Medicare, pretty much every, not basically every other specialty, you know, the Medicare rates actually aren't that much lower, you know, they're getting paid 150, 125% of Medicare by commercial payers. Is that the whole difference? I have no idea. Uh, probably not. I bet there is some element of, of some actual differential that is, or, you know, too low or whatever you want to call it, of Medicare rates. But whatever I believe about that, it's not really that relevant to the actual discussion because, right, the minimum payment is being set based on commercial rates today. And those average rates are, you know, 350% of Medicare, right? I, I always talk about in like multiples of Medicare, I know anesthesiologists talk about it being 30%, but that's the same, that's the same fundamental thing. So, so that'll still factor. My point is that'll still, right? The minimum payment is still sort of creating a floor here. Um, and right, it is just inflated forward from, it's whatever the median was in 2019 and then inflated forward forever. So there's not like, you can't have game playing going forward now where insurer X just says, look, oh, in 2021, I'm just going to take everyone out of network except the one guy who accepts Medicare rates, right? That's not going to happen. You can't do that at least. So there's not that. I mean, obviously that could go both ways, but the, that, that can't happen at least. So, you know, as far as the arbitration, I, I was looking at the, the the really great summary you did, which I, I want to link to in the show notes. So anybody listening, apmsuccess.com slash 119, we're going to linked to a bunch of Lauren's great literature, research him and his team have done. There was a summary of the No Surprises Act that outlined the sort of the the inputs for the arbitrator to consider as they're trying to set a price. Can you maybe just talk about a couple of those that you think are important facets of this conversation to consider? Sure. So there are, there's this, you know, there is a list of a handful of factors for the arbitrator to consider 
in my experience, all right. So this isn't this isn't novel in some sense. There are a good a number of states at this point that have set up surprise billing laws that have an arbitration process. My read of the evidence from those states is that arbitrators generally come up with some rule of thumb, generally based on some sort of price metric, and just sort of say whoever's closer to that wins. At least, like almost all the time. Other than right, you're always going to get some extreme case, you know, extenuating circumstance cases. But by and large. You know, I expect that to be the case. So, right. So it's mostly the main factor, as I've been saying, is just whatever the median in-network price is that the insurer pays to anesthesia groups. And it's that is like geography specific and market specific. So it's even like their individual market contracts and their employer group contracts are like factored differently. And it's just the median of the contract. So if they've got five different anesthesia groups in network, the middle priced one of those is the one that sort of becomes that median price. And then the other one is just they, they do have to take into account prior contracted rates. So if insurer X and anesthesia group Y had a contract within the last four years, they're supposed to take into account what price was in that. And then there's just all of these things about just sort of quality of the physician, patient acuity and things like that. It's sort of funny because a lot of that patient acuity is like explicitly built into the modifiers on anesthesia claims. But it's, so some of it's like that one. It's like, I don't know how much that factors in because like that's already on the claim. That's why I tend to think they'll sort of the factors that have a little bit more concreteness are probably the ones that end up getting looked at more. And it's just how does the arbitrator really know who's like the I think they're not in a great place to say who the better higher quality anesthesiologist is. And like, obviously some people are better than others, but like, I don't, I think they're in a hard place to, to make decisions like that. It's interesting to note, and this is something I, there was a, an interview, a panel that you were on that I, I referenced the other day that I watched, which was really helpful. It's from a couple of years ago, actually describing the No Surprises Act as, as it then existed, was getting kicked around in Congress. And you were talking about following where the PE money is flowing, the private equity money. And I think that this is something that I've been very interested in for as long as I've been doing what I'm doing, which is where is Wall Street identifying an opportunity and then throwing a bunch of money at it because they see ways to make money. And Wall Street obviously can have a big, bad type of connotation, which I think if we look at it in just the naked economics of it for a minute, there's an opportunity in these specific... So anesthesiology, as far as I'm aware, has been the most acquired physician by private equity in the last six to eight years. I'm guessing in no small measure because of this dynamic existing, the ability to, you know, oh my gosh, if we go out of network here, there, there's a business opportunity based on these rules to then increase revenue, which obviously on an individual patient basis is very... It's bad. There's, there's, <laughs> there's not a good way to justify that, in my opinion. But... How do you view this? So there's been a lot of consolidation, but some of these big groups have been very troubled and financially strained. How do you view what this is going to mean for the, if, you know, the, these juicy targets, these big emergency and anesthesia groups are no longer as juicy because this dynamic has totally been removed? What's that going to mean? My expectation is that over time, you will see a slowing and probably actually some reversal of private equities involvement in anesthesia and emergency medicine where they are you know i think i think i had it is they're almost up to they're almost up to 20% of the anesthesia market at this point and right it's a few big companies and some of the cross cut between emergency medicine and and anesthesia like in uh, like KKR's envision um, team health is a small uh, anesthesia footprint as well but you know so I think my expectation is that you see a slowing and moving out over time. I mean, actually, it's interesting because when you talk to private equity folks nowadays, it sounds like after their experience, 
experience recently with these specialties, there's now actually a discounting of out-of-network revenue when you are acquiring a target because a lot of these investments, like the more recent, like in the last few years has not worked out that well. And I'll say some of this is right. Surprise billing, a law finally happened and laws and states started passing. Part of this is, I, I sort of think some of this is not necessarily surprise billing per se, but taking advantage of historically generous out-of-network reimbursements from insurers back in the day where I think there was part of the market opportunity that folks realized was there are a lot of insurers that just pay a percentage of charges for, for all out-of-network care. So I should buy a group, you know, triple the charges, and they're still going to pay me 70% of that tripled number is like a sweet way to make money really quickly. And that's sort of an arbitrage almost. And I don't, insurers weren't going to just let that happen forever because that's just bad business and they don't want to you know, that hurts their ability to attract clients uh, and they don't like paying out money, right? So so I think there's some element of that, but fundamentally, yes, I, I sort of expect there to be some retrenchment. I don't, you know, I don't expect it overnight. It's not like the, these companies are still offering, you know, business management operations, letting people not sort of handle that aspect, you know, the doctors not handle that aspect of things. So, right, so there's still some attraction. There's, you know, large staffing groups have advantages in terms of work-life balance and things like that potentially. So it's not like there's no advantages that they may be offering, but I do think you've taken out, right? Part of their sales pitch, I presume, is we get better rates from insurers or, you know, at least we collect more money per patient. So, you know, we can pay you more, the doctor. And also to the hospital contract, a lot of the times what happens, so that I understand is that they require lower subsidies from the hospitals because they are like better at getting money from insurance companies. Right. That's the, that's the, the theory anyway. Yeah. In emergency medicine, we have like a much better documented version of this in anesthesia. There's not as clear. We don't have as much documentation on that. So I, I like to sort of state when I'm not, uh, when I don't think we have like clean data on some of these things. What do you think this means from a, an employment market standpoint? Because I was looking recently, there's a, a guy, uh, his name is Tony Mira, who runs the Anesthesia Business Consultants is the name of the company out of somewhere in Michigan. And I follow him closely. He's He works with a ton of groups nationally and has great, like a newsletter that he puts out. I saw recently, it was like estimated, you know, anesthesia staff existing in different regions based on estimated need. And every single region between MDs, or I should say, you know, physician anesthesiologists and CRNAs as well. Every region for both of those was a deficit with the notable exception of the, the West in the CRNA bucket, which was an unexplainable outlier to me. But basically everywhere we need anesthesiologists. And my anecdotal observation is that there are plenty of anesthesia employment situations that are pretty tough, that are very demanding. And it's true that anesthesiologists earn a good income, but they have to go well into six figures of debt in order to be able to do that. Then they have to train for a really long time. And I'm curious, and you know, we can only make so many anesthesiologists because CMS limits the number of seats in anesthesia residencies, which is a big bottleneck. What is this going to mean for how much anesthesiologists are going to make? <laughs> and how are we going to continue to attract a desperately needed specialty? What, what needs to change here? So I am very, uh, in my personal view, I'm very strong supporter of getting rid of some of these supply barriers. Um, so I certainly think we should be having, uh, allowing more people to yeah, have residency slots and become doctors in America, right? We have some foreign doctors, uh, but that's mostly, I mean, primary care is almost like half foreign doctors at this point. So, right, there is some element of that. 
you know, I, I would not be shocked if we see a growing reliance on CRNAs for for more, at least sort of the, you know, with supervised, uh, with supervision. You know, I th- certainly think we'll see something like that. The, I think what, yes, my guess would be that the average pay for anesthesiologists goes down some relatively small amount, maybe not even goes down, but grows more slowly than it otherwise would have. That being said, again, there's still a market, right? Hospitals need to attract anesthesiologists and right. You can't, hospitals have a lot of other business that they literally need an anesthesiologist or CRNA, whatever. They need someone to administer anesthesia or else they're not making the boatloads of money that they're making on other things. So fundamentally, like as long as that exists, the market should adjust. It's slow because we have the supply bottlenecks and it takes so long to become a doctor. So like adjustments are relatively slow. But fundamentally, there's still a payment mechanism here that can respond to shortages to the extent they sort of, to the extent they exist. And you know, that's why I don't expect that people are going to get paid low amounts of money. And it is right, you know, even with that, it is still the, you know, being a doctor, especially not primary care or pediatrician, is like the number one way to a healthy wealth when you're 50, sort of thing. I would say just again, a couple more little anecdotal data points here. There are facilities out here that are canceling elective surgeries because they don't have anesthesia staff. And I'm talking to friends and locums companies who are trying to desperately, like they have every facility out there banging on their door saying, give us as many doctors as you can find. And the, the locums guys are pounding the phones, trying to find physicians to send to these facilities. And there's there's no one. So it's a, and between you know some of these issues we're discussing, obviously coronavirus and the crossover with critical care and anesthesiology and the demands there and just the push, 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 push. And now we're in another surge with Delta. There's all these... I, it feels to me like th- this is a, a bit of a crisis moment. And I do think there's a, we're going to get through it from a staffing standpoint, but it's very much pinched in ways that are, as you pointed out, when hospitals can't run ORs, they're not making a lot of money. If literally they can't find someone to do the anesthesia, that shows you how desperate the shortage is because you know how bad they want that. I mean, right. I'll, as long as it's possible that demand for anesthesia grows faster than any sort of effect, right? It's possible salaries just keep going up because. The demand is, or the demand outstripping supply is growing faster than any sort of, I think, relatively modest effect you're going to see from from the law. So you know maybe things keep on chugging along basically under that construct, right? It just again with the caveat that physician markets are a little slower to adjust than some. I mean, obviously, just like getting more supply of physicians is not a. It just takes time, especially with restrictions on immigration and things like, I mean, right. That's the quickest way is to allow immigration of doctors, but, but otherwise, right. It just takes, you know, uh, whatever, six, seven, eight years, depending on what we're talking about here. But so it's just not that simple to, to reorient some of this. Are there any key facets of this, you know, legislation coming down the pike or ways that you think it's going to impact this specialty that we haven't already addressed that you think weren't mentioning? I am, I am somewhat, this is more a curiosity or a, a possible expectation as well, but I, I, I do wonder whether as you see some shift away from some of these bigger private equity groups, whether there is more, whether it becomes more popular again to employ your anesthesia group. I just think you've taken away some of the attraction of the staffing company model is that they're better at getting money out of insurance companies. And if you, it's also billing and collecting and things like that. So maybe their value in the sort of high deductible world is still really strong, just in being better at bill collectors effectively. But I do, I sort of wonder whether you see some sort of just changes to who is hiring anesthesia. Like what are the, are some of, are more of the, 
and, you know, especially more of the academic medical centers now really staffing their entire anesthesia groups in-house. And also, right, there's all these non-competes that are uh, in contracts a lot. I mean, I hear a lot from like hospital executives being upset about like they want to, you know, staff part of their their hospital with, you know, in-house folks and half with a staffing company. And a lot of the contracts don't allow. So like, I think you'll see some balancing out of that back to what I would think of as like a more natural state of things as you see, if you see some retrenchment from the private equity interest here. But, you know, again, I don't expect this to be an overnight phenomenon. So I'm very curious to look five, 10 years from now to see if there has been some shift back towards uh, sort of hospital employment. Yeah, you and me both. Well, Lauren Adler, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your wisdom on APM success. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.